Good morning, Harmony. Happy Easter, everyone. All right. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Luke Gradless. I have the great honor of being one of the pastors here at Harmony Baptist Church, uh, along with Brother Joe Canales. So we're very glad that you're here today to celebrate Resurrection Sunday with us. Um, before I jump into this sermon, I, I wanted to share just a, a little story with you guys. Um, Recently, after 128,000 miles, we finally got rid of our old car and got a new one. Now, before you get excited, it's a minivan. And I know some of you look at that and go, if you had a minivan, why would you not use the opportunity of getting a new car to get something cooler? Well, here's just the honest to goodness truth. You need to know who you are. And me and Cool, we separated a long time ago. And I don't see our paths crossing again. When you are an overweight, balding, middle-aged man who's a pastor at a Baptist church, not one of those ones who wears the skinny jeans and looks all cool, not one of those, even a Corvette is not going to make me cool, right? Not going to happen. So we got a minivan. And to be honest with you, I didn't even appreciate how bad our old minivan was until we had the new one. Because now that we have the new one, I noticed things like it's nice to have doors that stay open when you open them. Because we used to have those doors that you'd open them and then you quickly had to get out before they swung back and hit you. It's nice to look at the dashboard and know that if a light's on, that means something. Because in our old car, you know, you'd, somebody else would drive and be like, just ignore all those lights. Check engine, it doesn't mean anything. It's good. Trust me, it's good. It's nice to have all the buttons in the car work versus like only two of them. Because we used to have all these things in the car, like, no, that one doesn't do anything. No, that doesn't work either. Not that one either. And it's also really nice on long trips to not hear those noises that make you pray and go, please, Lord, don't let that be anything serious. It's just really nice to be in a vehicle that works and functions and is safe and all the kids are in it. It's, it's great. It's great to have things sometimes that are new and take away the stresses and the burdens that we're used to living with day in and day out. The unique thing though is, is it was surprising to me that I didn't realize how much of my old car was broken until I had the new one. It was weird how much I had gotten used to dealing with some things that I should have probably gotten used to dealing with. And so today as we come and talk about Resurrection Sunday, where we talk about this day where Christ defeats death, I want all of us to kind of look at not just what we have today, but look at what Christ offers. Because what He offers, what He has brought to us, what He has laid at the feet of every individual is far greater than any new house or new car. He offers more than any material possession ever could. He offers you the chance at a brand new life. And not just a fresh start, but a fresh start that now has new options that you never had before. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me. Let's look at, sorry there. We're going to jump into Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. In Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, we read about that Resurrection Sunday, the very first one, oh so long ago. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found a stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. 
And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And so as we read about that first Resurrection Sunday, a couple things are brought to mind for us. A couple things are shown to us. On that day, all the things Jesus had taught about for years suddenly started to make sense. See, it's funny, Jesus didn't just talk about the resurrection after the resurrection. He had talked about the fact that he would need to die and rise again throughout his entire ministry. In fact, his father God had been talking about this since the Old Testament. This should have been something that the disciples and that his followers were expecting and waiting for. But for some of us, the truths of God are so grand and so big that no matter how many times we hear about them, we tend to push them off. We tend to keep them at arm's length because there's this, there's this just not optimistic part of ourselves that says that can't be true. It's too good to believe. And I think many people, when they heard about Jesus in his life, talking about rising again from the dead, that seemed like an impossibility. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to be careful when we look at passages like this, and we have to be careful when we look at all passages that talk about miracles. Because in this day and age, what's starting to happen is you're starting to see a group of Christians arise who will tell you things like, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, I follow the gospel, but not all of it. I mean, those things about the miracles, those things about him coming back from the dead, I think those are more philosophical. I think they're more spiritual truths. I think they're trying to point to things that God means for us to think like. But we don't actually believe a real man came back from the dead and actually physically walked around. And we have to watch this because what this is, is this us trying to find a middle ground that offends no one. And to do so betrays everything that Jesus was. Resurrection Sunday is the key to everything because it's on Resurrection Sunday that we realize that Jesus Christ is not just a great teacher. He is not just a great man. He is the living Son of God. And that means the things he taught about, the things he instructed us to do, they carry with them a completely and utterly different weight than anything else you've ever heard from someone. See, brothers and sisters, to be honest, there are plenty of wise people that you can listen to. In fact, many of you probably have folks that you pay attention to, you use as advice, you use for their guidance, you use their counseling, right? I know people who swear by Dave Ramsey. Right? I know people who have their favorite politicians and they think they're fantastic and awesome and they're saving the world. We all have these people we lean on. And some of us, what we've done as Christians is we've added Jesus to that list. We've gone, you know, I've got my list of friends that I phone when I'm in need and i got one extra, it's Jesus. But that's not where he wanted to be. Jesus isn't like a great counselor or advisor. He is the one and only Son of God. 
He is your Lord and He is your Savior. He was fully man and fully God. Which means when He speaks, He doesn't speak as someone giving a guess. He doesn't speak as someone giving you His best wisdom that might work for your situation. No, when He speaks, He speaks as the perfect, all-knowing God who knows exactly what you need to do. The reality is, is if you take all of Jesus' ministry and you stop it at the cross, then there's no point for any of us to be here. Because Jesus would have just then been one of millions of great philosophers and teachers. People with an interesting perspective on life that give us some insights. But notice, that's not how Jesus has changed the world. That's not how He's changed history. Whether you're a believer or not, there is one thing no one ever argues, and that is the most influential person in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. Now for those that aren't believers, that's a hard thing to explain. If we were to say Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar was the most influential person ever, well that makes sense. These are kings, these are emperors, they ruled the greatest empires, they conquered half the world. They ruled for decades. So if those men were the most influential of all time, well, of course. But how do you explain if Jesus is just a moral teacher that an unknown carpenter from Israel, who only was publicly known for three years, and who at the mass of his lifetime only had a few hundred followers, how do you explain that that individual changed the course of history? How do you explain that the empire that kills that man within a hundred years begins to worship him? How do you do that? See, to me, when you look at the life of Christ and you just step back, and you look at what he's done to history, you go, there has to be something. There has to be something that happened that made this man change the world unlike any others. Now the beautiful thing is, is there's actually evidence that tells us what that is. There's this big, beautiful book that proclaims to us exactly what happened that changed everything about Jesus' teaching and his impacts upon the world. And brothers and sisters, it's not alone in proclaiming these things. You go and look at Jewish historians, you go back and look at Roman historians, and they will tell you that these things happened. They will tell you that there were people in those days proclaiming these things and they couldn't be silenced. And when we look, Paul explains to us that there is no gospel. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. If you have your Bibles, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, only some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called one, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. You see what he says there? Paul, the one building the churches, Paul, the one risking death to spread the gospel, says, if you sit here and say the resurrection didn't happen, then all this is worthless. <coughs> Paul did not follow Jesus because he was some great philosopher. He didn't follow Jesus because he listened to him preaching and said, you know what? I like what this guy has to say. It inspires me. When I apply it to my life, it makes things better. It makes me feel good about myself. So I like this Jesus guy. I'm just going to keep listening to him. That's not what happened. And I want you to listen to this because I've got to be real with you. I think there are many people in our country who call themselves Christians, and that's exactly what they mean. They find Jesus to be wise. They find him to be a moral teacher. They find that some of the things he talks about when applied to their lives makes them better. But that was never Jesus' point. Jesus isn't here to make you the best you. Jesus is the living Son of God and He came and He lived and He died to pay a debt that we owed. And He paid that debt because He knew that as long as you and I were sinners, which just simply means less than perfect. As long as we were less than perfect, then He knew you and I would always be separated from the Father and you and I could not have our home in heaven with Him. And so Jesus, out of love, came, He taught, He lived, He served, and He died for you and me. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, that's not unbelievably unique. There are many people who have loved folks enough that they will die for them. There are many folks who have preached wisdom throughout the years that came nowhere from the Word of God. What made Jesus different is three days after they killed Him, He rose. What made Jesus different is while everybody else proved to simply be a man, which meant as good as their wisdom or their logic could be, it could still be flawed. Because brothers and sisters, no matter how arrogant we may be, no matter how awesome we all may think we are, most of us are humble enough to admit we're not perfect. And so if you follow the wisdom and advice and guidance of someone that you know not to be perfect, you're admitting that you follow flawed logic. When Christ rose from the dead, what he proved to us is this is no man. This is God. He is perfect. He is without flaw. He is without weakness. And he makes no mistakes. And not only is he perfect, but my goodness, he is loving. 
Loving to the point that he doesn't give us his extra. He doesn't give us his excess. No, he gave us his best. He, the one that could have used all that ability and power and love to live a life of unbelievable comfort, sacrificed it all because he loved us. He exemplifies what love is, the joyful sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. One of the most famous Christian authors of all time, C.S. Lewis, he had this to say about this idea of people who want to believe Jesus is just a great moral teacher. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They'll say, I'm ready to accept Jesus is a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being some great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. What he gets to is just right to the heart of it. Jesus, just read the New Testament, walked around and said he was God. Jesus walked around and said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You cannot be a great moral teacher if you think you're God and you're just a person. A person who does that is not someone that you and I would be like, man, you've got to listen to this guy. He's amazing. One side note, might be lunatic. Maybe. But the rest of the things he says, phenomenal. No, if we knew someone who said they were God, expected people to worship him, expected people to serve him and treat him as the holy, perfect king of the universe, I don't think any of us would be like, great guy, awesome. You'll love him. I think most of us would have a problem with him. And so either Jesus is this lunatic who ran around as a madman, or he is exactly what he says he is. And what we point to to say he is what he is, is Resurrection Sunday. This is a man who defeated death. This was a man who took the worst that sin, the worst that Satan, the worst that the world, the worst that nature could throw at you, and he pushed it back. <laughs> now, brothers and sisters, there's one other beautiful point about this, and that is, is if we look at this and realize that Jesus is God, if we realize this isn't just a man, but this is the perfect, holy, almighty Son of God, then not only does that reveal an amazing truth about who He is? But it also reveals an amazing truth about what He offers us. Amen. See, brothers and sisters, the beauty of Jesus as King and the reason that I am willing to serve Him, why I am willing to call myself His servant and His slave, which I know is verbiage that's offensive to many, 
Then you go, we live in America. This is the land of the free. Who chooses slavery? I do. Why? Because that's my master. Because the master I serve does not come to oppress me. He doesn't come to take from me. He doesn't come to make me serve him for his whims. He comes with perfection and with love and with holiness and with better plans for my life than I could ever dream of on my own. And he leads me down that path. And once you've come into the presence of the almighty Jesus, you know what you realize? I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to lead my own life. Trust me, even as a Christian, there were times in my life where I tried to make my plans happen. And my plans have always paled in unbelievable comparison to His. The very best gifts in my life were never on my roadmap. They were never part of my five-year plan. Most of them were things that hit me out of the blue, and when they came, I'm like, what is this? It's messing up my plans. And now I fall on my knees. I thank Him every day for those things. And when you have that happen to you, you go, I don't need to drive anymore. Father, I'll sit in the back seat and you take me where you want to go. Now the second thing that God offers us is not just the chance to be a servant, but what comes with that is a new life. Look at John 3.16. I know you've heard it, but let me reveal a little bit of something you might not have known about this word. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'll be honest with you, I am not a master of Hebrew or Greek or Latin. But there's some depth to that word eternal that you and I miss. As English speakers, when we hear the word eternal, what we tend to think of is just length of time. When I say you will live for eternity, you think I'll live forever. But let's be honest, eternal life, if it just meant forever, actually is not a fantastic promise. But if, if I had eternal life but just lived in this body that keeps deteriorating on me, I imagine by about 100 years old, I'd be wishing you would kill me. Now, can you imagine being 200 years old in these bodies? I mean, I'm 35 and can barely walk. I don't want to know what this body would look like at 200. And so when we just think about how long something is, that doesn't really do enough. And the beauty of that word eternal is it meant two things. It meant both a longevity to it, but an, a supreme quality to it. If you really look at that word, what he's saying is, I come to give you a beautiful and long life. He's promising equality. And to be honest, throughout all the words of Scripture, we keep seeing him do this. He's talking about Satan and he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, there are some of us who have followed Jesus because we think he's fire insurance. We think if we've said a prayer and we've got dunked in some water and we've come to church every now and then that we're covered. And if something tragically goes wrong and even though we're trying every day not to die, if that does happen, we'll get to go to heaven. Because we paid our premiums. We did our bare minimum. 
Brothers and sisters, if you really go look at the words of Christ, he so little speaks about heaven. What he was promising was a new life now. When you become a believer, which means not just that you sit here and shake your head and go, yeah, I believe there was a real guy named Jesus. Yeah, I believe he died on a cross. Yeah, I believe he rose three days later. Yeah, I think I want to listen to him occasionally. That's not being a Christian. Being a Christian is saying, I believe all those things, and because of those, I will serve him with everything I am and everything I have from here on out. Every day. When you say those things, what he comes and does is he changes you now. He's not holding paradise out here going, hey, one day when you die, I'll, I'll reveal all this to you. It'll be great then, trust me. No, he's saying from that second forward, new life. Brand new life. From that very first second. The gloriousness of being a Christian is not what happens to you when you die. It's that from that very first second, the chains are broken and you experience life in a way you never dreamed possible before. I remember when I had kids, I'd heard from so many people before that you just don't know what it's like to love them until you have them. And I remember thinking, like, I, I, I think I have an idea. And especially back then, I was dumb and young, and I was a children's pastor and youth pastor. I had a lot of kids I was close to, and I mentored and helped shape and helped grow. And I felt like, you know, it's got to be similar to this. And then I had my own kid and realized what an idiot I was. Because as much as I like those other kids, oh my goodness, holding my own child in my hands. It felt like watching uh, the Grinch at Christmas where the heart grows three times bigger, you know? You can't describe it. And any of you out there that don't have kids, you're probably like, eh, no, trust me. When it happens to you, you'll go, he was right. That's the kind of thing that happens when you become a believer. There's this new abundant life that you can never describe before. Look it with me at Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writing to a different church talks about this same thing, this, this new life. And he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died to your life, and that is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then also you will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality, to impurity, to passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you will also walk. Oh, I'm sorry, in them you once also walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you have put on the new self, 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. What he's saying to us is when we become Christians, we get a chance to put off that old life. Now, I'm not telling you that means that suddenly all your old temptations, all your old struggles just disappear. Trust me, they'll still be there. But now you actually have a power within you that doesn't come from you. It comes from God that allows you to actually put that aside. A power to push away that life of sin and to put on a new life. And to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, I think that's the mistake a lot of us are making. I think a lot of us have come to the cross and we are willing to accept the Savior. We're willing to take on someone who loves us enough to have died for our transgressions and sins. Because most of us, if we've been through life, most of us sit here and can acknowledge, I need help. Most of us have tried to be our own God. Most of us have tried to make our own plans. Most of us have tried to make our own selves great. And if you've lived long enough, you know what you realize? You're not very good at it. And for most of us, after enough times of your plans blowing up in your face, you start to realize that the problem may not be the plan. It may not be the job. It may not be that romantic partner. It may not be anyone else. It may actually just be you. And you start to go, wait, there's someone who will come clean up my mess. There's someone who can love me even despite all these things I've done. So I think a lot of us, we go, I like that message of a Savior. I need one. And so we gladly push off the old to them. The problem is we stop right there. We stop right there. And that's why so many people who become Christians, right, they become Christians in that first year, first month, first three months, first whatever, they're on fire. Because they go, man, it's so amazing to feel loved. It's so amazing to be forgiven. But then what happens? It just fizzles out. Why? Because they never started putting on the new life. Christ didn't come just to wipe away your sins. He came to wipe away your sins and then to cover you in His righteousness. He came to take away those things that used to harm you and hurt you and oppress you and now to give you a new glorious life. Not one of perfection, but one of power and purpose. One where you have a knowledge and a love in your life and a mission given to you from God to go outside those doors and to share the gospel with others. And when you put on that new life, when you really taste what it's like to be in the presence of God, you want nothing else. In the book of John, there's a story of Jesus giving a very hard sermon. He gives a sermon that just really offends people because basically what he tells them is, if you're here to be entertained, get lost. He has thousands of people show up one day after he does this amazing miracle, and he looks at them and he goes, you're not here for the right reasons. You're not here to know God. 
You're not here to have passion and love and purpose in your life. You are here to have full bellies and to be entertained. I'm a sideshow to you, so get lost. I'm paraphrasing. That's not actually in the New Testament. But go read John and read about the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and you'll see him preach this sermon much more eloquently than I'm summing it up. And everybody leaves. Thousands just disappear. And Jesus looks at his disciples and they're kind of confused because they had thought, man, we're going to build a kingdom. We're going to build a kingdom here on earth. We need people. Why would he push them away? And Jesus looks at them and he says, will you too leave? And Peter looks at Jesus and he goes, where else would we go? From you we have heard the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Peter's point is, God, I don't understand everything you do. Sometimes I'm lost. I don't really understand what you just did right now, but I do know this. After being with you, God, I can go nowhere else. After being your servant, after following you, after being at your side, there's nowhere else I can go. I need to be where you're at. That's why when we read that beautiful Psalm 23, talking about the Lord being our shepherd, he says he'll take us both through the green pastures and through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice he doesn't say as your shepherd, I'll make sure you never go through a scary place. No, what he says is, is as your shepherd, when we're in that valley, you won't fear. When we're in that valley where you're surrounded by your enemies, I will set a table for you, I will feed you a feast, and I will protect you. And the point that he makes there is that brothers and sisters, the gift of being a servant of God is not where you're at. It's who you're with. And if you're with Him, if you're in His presence, you'll realize there is no better place in the entire world to be. And so brothers and sisters, I encourage you to think about where you sit in your relationship with God. Do you sit there as someone who doesn't believe at all? If so, that's fine. But ask yourself why. Why don't you believe? What reasons have you given yourself to ignore everything that's here? Have you really cried out to the heavens and said, God, if you're there, show yourself? Go ahead, Daryl. He loves that. And if you are a believer, are you the type that C.S. Lewis was talking about? The one that's carved out just a little piece for him? You've told yourself, hey, he's a great moral teacher, great philosopher. He has some really great things to say about being a good person. I go to him every now and then for advice. Because if that's true, then you're really not living by this. The only right way for us to leave this place, the only right way to be, is to be someone who has challenged their own thoughts, their own beliefs, and has seen that he is God. Not just a great teacher, but the creator of the universe that defeated death. And not just death of this body, but death of the spirit. And he offers to each of us a brand new life. A 
life not built off material, but a life built off love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. That is laid at your feet. He died to get that to you. What will you do with it? Will you pick up that gift? Will you put on that new self? And will you experience the joy that only He can bring? Or will you just let it sit there? That choice, brothers and sisters, is not mine. It's yours. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before You, Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday. And we are just overjoyed that You have loved us like You have. Father, that You loved us enough to send Your Son to this earth. To die for our sins, for our debts, Lord, when He owed nothing. That, Father, not only have You forgiven us of our debts, but that You have offered us to be Your children. To be treated like royalty. And that on top of that, Father, You've given us the great duty to reflect Your love and Your wisdom and Your light to this world. It's such a gift, Lord. There are no words that could ever express our gratitude. Father, I pray in this room that each and every person in here has come face to face with You. Has stared at Your beauty. And realizes there is no other place they want to be and with you. Father, in the wonderful, beautiful, and loving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As Maria is already up here, uh, I will be down here at the front. And if there's anything on your heart that you just like to pray about, you just like to know that somebody else is praying for you with whatever you're facing, feel free to come forward. And as always, brothers and sisters, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek me, your brother Joe, out afterwards. We are always here to talk. We're always here to pray. Pray. Let's all stand. Say 
safe travels back home. Hopefully you are with family and you'll get to spend a great uh, afternoon together eating food. Not gluttonous though. Not gluttonous. But eating food and enjoying the company of those that you love. I do want to remind you of two things. If you are a believer you've been given a spirit of power, love and self-discipline. And you have a mission. It's to go out those walls and to make disciples of people and to share that gospel with them. I hope you have a great week. God bless you and we love you.